here's some really great news. You can make a ton of money as an environmental lawyer. I mean, a ton of money. You could make like into, you know, probably a million plus dollars a year as an environmental lawyer. Really? Oh yeah, for sure. You can save the planet and make a million dollars? Well, it's just that to make that much money as an environmental attorney, you're going to be representing the big corporations that would probably prefer to not be saving planet Earth as much as they would prefer to be, you know, kind of sneaking around the regulations as best they can to make sure that they can pollute just enough and still get away with that and be in compliance with the laws. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hello, everyone. Today we are talking about the CW show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's basically the story of Carla's life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. I, uh, you know, quit my big law job and moved across the country. So yeah, that's basically me. So, if you didn't know, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a rom-com that aired from 2015 to 2019, and it has an extra special twist. Despite being a TV show, it's also a musical. Yeah, it is very much a musical. There are a good number of musical numbers in each episode. And I don't know if maybe that's what turned some people off to it, but the ratings for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend were not great. I read that it was the lowest rated show to ever be picked up for a third and fourth season by, you know, by the original production company and television studio that put it out. Yeah, and I think that's because despite the low ratings, it was just getting tons and tons of critical acclaim. And I certainly see why I think this show didn't get nearly enough attention as it deserved. It is so clever. It is so witty. And it's really kind of bold and daring. I mean, the show took on some topics that a lot of TV shows would have shied away from as just too dark or too difficult or too thorny. I mean, they had a musical number called Period Sex about (laughs) having sex when the woman is on her period. They were just completely unafraid to tackle anything and everything that they thought was funny or that they thought was worth shining a light on. They had a song about depression called something like antidepressants or no big deal. And like how many people in America take some sort of anti-anxiety or anti-depression meds. They were just completely not concerned about like sticking to norms. They just did what they wanted to do. Yeah, I think they also did some cool stuff where the cast was, you know, across a lot of different uh, ages and races and sexual orientations. I think they did a really good job of sort of portraying a broad slice of society and bringing a bunch of people together who isn't that aren't often portrayed together as a family or friend unit in TV. Yeah, and it felt very, very natural too. It didn't seem forced at all. Like I know the the latest Sex in the City episodes that came out pretty recently and just like that got a lot of criticism for just seeming like they were trying to kind of cram too many woke things in and do it in a way that just felt forced and like they didn't really know how to handle those issues properly. But Crazy Ex-Girlfriend just seemed to hit the nail on the head every single time. They effortlessly addressed some pretty difficult issues and they did it with a sense of humor and they did it in a way that just made difficult things seem not 
that scary, at least not so scary that we can't talk about them on public television. So like I said, the show mirrors Carla's life. You go to a law school, work at a fancy law firm, and then decide to abandon it. Now, in all seriousness, uh, the main character, Rebecca Bunch, she lives in New York. She works at a big law firm. I think she's about to be made partner in the opening episode of the series. And down on the street, she sees she leaves the office for a moment and runs into a guy that she knew from middle school, uh, Josh Chan, who's like her crush from some sort of camp they went to. And his life sounds amazing. He lives in California in West Covina, which if you don't know, is not on the beach. It's not in the mountains. It's part of the Inland Empire. So while I'm sure it has a lot of good things going for it, it maybe isn't what most people think about when they picture moving to California. And on a whim, you know, frustrated with her life and deciding that the the world has sent her a sign, Rebecca Bunch decides to go follow Josh to California, moves after him and, and sort of reboots her life. Yeah, I think that about sums it up. So the title of the show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, is kind of a play on the fact that, you know, she dated this guy, Josh, when they were, I think, in high school for a very brief period. And then she's chasing him across the country, moving to this kind of middle of nowhere, not very exciting place because he's there. And the running joke on the show is, you know, well, that's not why I moved here. I just moved here because (laughs) I just, I liked West Covina when really it's just this super boring suburban place with not not a whole heck of a lot going on so yeah that's pretty much the plot in a nutshell um we are going to be focusing mostly on an episode that's a little bit later in season one today because it's got some really good money stuff going on in it so should we go ahead and jump into our first clip sure so rebecca bunch is in one of her many capers to win Josh over. When she moves to West Covina, California, she discovers that Josh actually already has a girlfriend, which is not awesome, given that that was the role she was hoping to take on. And she and her best friend, Paula, go through a number of just crazy shenanigans to try to get Josh away from his current girlfriend, Valencia, and get Rebecca in with Josh instead. So one of the things that they talk about doing is having Rebecca fly out to Hawaii, where Josh is going to be taking a vacation with some of his friends. She goes online to buy a plane ticket to Hawaii, and this is what happens. What's wrong? Um, okay, what's wrong is I was trying to buy the ticket for Hawaii, and so I tried all of my credit cards, and then I tried my debit card, and then I checked my bank account, which according to the welcome screen I haven't done since 2011, and now I'm seeing my balance, and Paula, guess what's in there? Guess. It's a negative number, Paula. It's negative a lot. Holy Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Paula, am I broke? Holy Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess this was filmed in 2016 or aired in 2016. So she hadn't checked her bank balance in five years. Yeah, that is quite a long time to go without knowing how much money you have to your name or what is going on with your finances. Yeah, I'm not super pleased with Rebecca Bunch at this point. So first thing let's talk about is, is it even possible to have a negative bank balance? How does that happen? Well, you spend more than you have. It would be my hypothesis. (laughs) But don't banks stop you from spending more than you have? I mean, wouldn't they like put some kind of a freeze on your bank account if you got down to zero? So it depends on the nature of of the structure you set up with that account and, and who you are at your bank. Uh, a lot of places offer overdraft protection, right? You can 
have that as a service that they'll offer and effectively they will pay your overdrafts where you've attempted to pull more money out than you actually have. And that, that can allow you to have a negative balance. Yeah, so it unfortunately is very realistic that you could have a negative bank balance. So if we're talking about just like a standard checking account here, if you write a check for more than you have in your account, when the bank finds out that you have written this check, they have two choices. One, they can say, well, this is you know a good customer. We've had them for a long time. We trust that they're going to be good for this. And they let the transaction go through, which would obviously result in a negative balance or they can cause the check to bounce. Basically saying, no, you don't have enough money in here. This check is no good. You can't write it. The check bounces, basically meaning it doesn't go through. So those are the two options that the bank has. Obviously, if they pick option A and they let the transaction go through, you have a negative balance. And then the other thing, as you talked about, is if you're using a debit card, a lot of times banks will allow you to opt into this quote overdraft program where you are allowed to go into a negative balance, but in exchange for that, the bank is gonna charge you an overdraft fee every time that you do it, which typically I think is somewhere in the range of like 30 to $35. So yeah, it is absolutely possible to go into an overdraft position. How do you avoid getting into a situation like this? What should she have done instead? Well, she had a bunch of, suddenly she had multiple credit cards. She had uh, her debit card, she had, you know, a bank balance that she was trying to manage or not trying to manage, I suppose. So there's a bunch of different places where she has money. And that's the way that most people are, right? You have more than just the cash in your wallet, the money in your bank account. You've got other assets that you're trying to deal with. I think the right approach for Rebecca, Rebecca Bunch here and for just about everybody is to use the modern digital tools that exist today the free services that are out there to sort of pool all of your financial happenings into one simple dashboard that can tell you what's going on. She can know what her credit card balance is on one page across multiple cards. She can know what's in her bank account um, across multiple bank accounts with multiple different banking providers. You you can pull it all together. There are tools like Mint or uh, Personal Capital. And basically, you can aggregate all of your accounts together in one spot and track the combined effects of all these things like on a regular basis without a whole lot of effort. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's certainly my advice too, is to use a modern finance tracker like Mint or Personal Capital. You need a budget. Basically, if you just Google finances tracker, you'll be met with a number of options that will all do exactly this thing for you. It takes such a little amount of upfront investment and time to get this set up. You basically just have to sit down and think, okay, which, what are all the credit cards that I have, all the bank accounts that I have to my name, get everything aggregated and do it once and link up all of those separate accounts into one of these finance trackers and then poof, you are done. From now on, that company, Mint or Personal Capital or whatever you use, is going to be doing the difficult work for you. So the days of having to carry a little notebook around and like keep track of every cent that you spend are long gone. You don't have to do that anymore. It's so much easier for you now to keep track of stuff like this. And in 2016, when this show aired, she absolutely would have had access to these tools. So there's no reason for anybody to be struggling with keeping track of how much money they have, how much money they owe, how much money they spend, 
This is all so easy to automate and to keep track of these days. And you can make all kinds of insightful discoveries about your spending with these tools as well, right? Yeah. It's not it's not just that they tell you how much money's been spent. They will tell you, like, you can categorize your expenses. It does it automatically. You can refine it further if you want to manage it that to that level of detail. But you can go back and see how much you spent on uh, personal care, on groceries, on restaurants, on rent, on utilities, whatever kind of categories you want, and, and track that across those different accounts. Most credit cards will do this for you already, but this takes it to the next step because it will aggregate multiple uh, sources of, of, of funds. Yeah, it's so illuminating when you are able to see how much money you're spending on really important categories like groceries and utilities. Information is power, right? And when you have the information about how much you're spending, it can be incredibly eye-opening and help you get those expenses under control if you've been letting a few things run wild. So I think it's very common for people to think, well, maybe I spent like, you know, $50 on clothing last month. I remember this little trip and that little trip. And yeah, it was probably around 50 bucks. And our memories are just not very good (laughs) keeping track of things like that. So when you actually sit down and are smacked in the face with the real numbers that you cannot argue with, it is kind of a shock to a lot of folks. So I think it's the most important thing that anyone can do with their finances is to set up a tracking system like this to help you get a grip on what you're actually spending, what's coming in, how much you're saving, if any. And of course, to avoid getting in a situation like Rebecca's in where just you're completely clueless as to what's going on with your money. Yeah. Easy to do, not a lot of time investment to make it happen, and then easy to draw meaningful conclusions from the data that's collected. Yeah. Let's take a listen to our next clip where we find out just a little bit more about how far down the rabbit hole Rebecca has her head and just how little she knows about what's going on with her finances. How could you be broke? You're rich. That's what I thought. I don't understand this. How am I broke? I can't be broke. I mean, all right, sure, since I've moved here, maybe I've spent a little money here and there. So I got this treadmill desk. That was like a $2,000 mistake. I pledge $1,000. Okay, it's really fine, I, I, I got it. I'm gonna go to the bank, withdraw $10,000, and plant it in your wife's suitcase. You had a huge salary in New York. What about your savings? Oh, I never worried about saving. You know what? I keep forgetting that you are so smart and so not smart. I just never had to think about money. You don't think about money. Wow, that must free up some time. (laughs) So it's crazy. Crazy ex-girlfriend, she does crazy money things. What I love about it is, you know, they recounted a couple of examples of where she spent money in sort of absurd ways. And she does this all throughout the series. But it's one of the cool things about the show, right? They, they make fun of themselves. We talked earlier about how there's a, there's a character, Greg, who's played by one guy in the first couple of seasons. He's not in season three. And then in season four, they use a new actor to play him. So instead of acting like nothing happened and playing it like we were all cool with it, they make fun of it. They joke about how he looks a little bit different and that his time away has changed him somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that the show does really, really well. They break the fourth wall a decent amount of the time and they just call themselves out. Yeah, they do ridiculous things like having the characters make obscene money choices and so many shows do that, right? And they just never acknowledge it. They just pretend like it's normal for people to live in a super fancy apartment when they're working a job that would pay them like 50 grand a year. 
But in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, they shine a light on it and they say, we've been kind of silly about money. Let's talk about that. And then they have the character go through this serious crisis of having negative dollars to her name. Yeah, one of the other things that I really like about this clip is this idea that Rebecca seems so rich. Like, she's been spending all this money. We know that she had this big New York salary from a big law firm before. And so everyone just kind of assumes that she has infinite money to her name, including Rebecca. And I think that's another great thing for the show to shine a light on because just because you're spending a lot of money does not mean that you actually have that money to spend, right? People go into debt to keep up appearances and seem more wealthy than they are. People make ridiculous spending decisions and are saving absolutely no money and get themselves to a point where they're just barely scraping by of paycheck to paycheck, even if they're making a ton. I think the show is really spotlighting all of that and causing people to pay attention to the fact that, hey, big spending does not equal big bank accounts. What I love about this clip is the way that Paula, that's the friend who's in the clip, uh, she says, I forget that you're smart, but you're not smart about everything. Yeah. And I, I think it's so true. It's really easy to be brilliant about a lot of stuff, but not when it comes to money. I mean, take let's humbly take ourselves here. Right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're okay uh, intelligence-wise. We're relatively smart. But I think we, for a long time, weren't money smart, right? I remember we we had good jobs and we were conservative with our spending and we were saving money. And it's it was at the time that we were kind of recovering from the, the 2008, 2009 financial crisis as a, as a country. And we had like a bunch of excess funds sitting around. And what were we doing with it? Nothing. I think we, we didn't even have our money in a savings account, right? We had... Yeah. We had savings sitting in a big checking account doing zero for us at a time when the stock market was going bananas. Mm-hmm. Going gangbusters. And I, I like, I still think we're smart people in general, but we were pretty money stupid about that sort of thing at the time. And it's so common for people to have blind spots in their life in ways that are really important. Yeah, well, I think part of the problem is that schools don't teach this at all, Right. And I think unless you have parents who are super financially savvy and really care about this kind of thing, there's this insane attitude that it's just like, well, people just figure it out, you know? Like, I figured it out at some point in my past. People will just get there on their own. But you don't. Like, you don't know. And in fact, when I was pretty young, pretty new at the law firm game, we had somebody that that we knew from college reach out to us and talk to us about investing in whole life insurance. And they made it seem like a really great investment. I mean, they show us these graphs of how much money we will have when we're, you know, 65 years old. And if you don't know any differently, why wouldn't you fall for something like that? We, I mean, I think we got pretty close to doing it. By the way, whole life insurance is almost always a terrible decision. Separate your insurance and your investments. Yes. Whole life insurance is basically an attempt to mishmash them together. If you need life insurance, which if you have children or other dependents who are reliant on your income, it's a great idea to have life insurance. But get term life insurance. Pay for the product that you need. But that is a completely separate thing from investing your money for long-term success. Yeah, we're going to talk about index funds in a separate episode on the hit show Bridgerton. So be sure to check that out. 
that is what we recommend for long-term investing. Whole life insurance is generally a scam and we would advise people to stay far, far away from it. <laughs> Indeed. But my, my point was, look, just because you are really successful in one area of your life, you may you may still struggle with some of the financial choices. One of the things that also is mentioned in this clip from Paula is we don't have a whole lot of background that we've given you on Paula, but she's having some financial stress in her life. I mean, things aren't terrible by any means. She has a good job, but she's not, she doesn't have the same perception of financial success as, as Rebecca does. And you just hear the thought in her, you know, the sound in her voice around the idea that you're not thinking about money. Wow. That must free up so much time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when you are struggling and living paycheck to paycheck, the fear of running out of money and the concern about where every dollar is going, it's very powerful. And it does take up a lot of your mental bandwidth to be concerned about that. Well, I think it's super liberating to not worry about money. But oh, yeah. There's a there's two sides to the spectrum, right? You, you don't want it to be something that's just weighing on you every day and a huge stressful thing that's, that's really not setting up for life satisfaction. At the same time, you can't do it like Rebecca Bunch did and ignore it for five years. And then find out things aren't where you hoped they would be. Maybe somewhere in the middle. You got to give it a little bit of attention. Oh, for sure. Well, I think what's great about these modern day trackers that we have that we've been talking about is that they do so much of the, the work for you. So you don't have to be stressing out every single day and tracking where every single penny is going. You can just do it the one time and then just regularly check in and see you know, that last little spending splurge that I did, how much did that actually affect me? How much can I spend on groceries now? And Mint will do that work for you or whichever one you use. And you don't have to spend quite as much time worrying about it. Yeah, that's great. So the show continues on in this episode with even further evidence that Rebecca Bunch has no idea what's going on with her money. Okay, you're going to get a paycheck next week, right? I get a paycheck next week? Wait, for how much? You don't know how much you earn? I'm a lawyer, not an accountant. Oh, everyone, there's a car right outside the office and it's being repossessed. They're towing it right now. Does anyone here own a 2015 Hyundai Sonata? No. Oh my God, oh my God, I can't watch, I can't watch, I can't watch. My poor little Hyundai. Oh my gosh, with this roomy interior and sporty feel. Did you pay your lease? I mean, my lease is set to auto pay, but- You didn't pay your lease. You know what, unless you have a time machine, comments like that aren't helpful right now. What do I do? Uh, maybe I can sell the car. Wait, what? Do I not own my car? Do I not own my car anymore? Paula. So, payday. She doesn't know when payday is, nor does she know how much she gets paid. Yeah, I feel like that's that's a pretty big oversight in life. I mean, this is someone who's just 100% oblivious to her financial situation. She must have just walked around spending like she had an infinite supply of money, with absolutely no clue as to how much she actually did have. I do think it is, it's hammed up a little bit for comedic effect. It's hard to believe that anyone would have gotten quite this far without realizing what was going on with their financial situation. I mean, surely she would have been receiving notices in the mail or via email. I mean, it seems a little bit unbelievable to me that she would have been this completely oblivious? Well, a couple things. So one, the part about her not knowing about the payday, I think that's actually pretty reasonable. There's a bunch of folks who don't know if they get paid every other week or twice a month or like what that looks like. 
one of the, the really nice things about our, you know, direct deposit, you don't have to go to the bank every other week or whatever to deal with your paycheck and you have access to your funds immediately. Like one, one of the great things is you don't have to waste your time with that stuff. But one of the downsides is you don't really know when you get paid. You don't see your pay stub and look at it particularly regularly. Many people do, but many people don't. I think there's lots of folks who are in a, let's call it a comfortable financial position where they're not super worried about not being able to make ends meet. They may not be where they want to be financially, but they're they're okay enough and they don't pay attention to the details at all. And then the second part about not knowing what's going on with uh, you know notices and feedback, I want to argue that it's You'd be surprised how many people have moved and not updated their records somewhere or, you know, they changed an email address with something. Maybe they had like a university address that they don't have access to anymore or they started one when they were younger and they've moved on or they got married and, you know, changed their email address and stopped using the old one. uh, And it became only this thing that was junk mail and some bills and everything's fine. Don't worry about it. It's it's possible to not be in the know. I, I realize Normal people don't go five years without logging into their banking system. But at the same time, you could be in the dark for a little while. Yeah, that's very true. And I do think this is a great lesson to learn that auto pay and just automating your finances in general, things like direct deposit being set up automatically. Yeah, it is really, really great. But it does cause you to detach from your finances mentally And if you're not making that effort to check in and keep tabs on things, then you can lose track of where things are pretty easily. Again, with a finance tracker, which, by the way, are completely free. I I don't think any of the ones that we've been talking about charge any kind of money. You, if you're using one of these trackers, you're not going to be in that position. Like all of this information will be presented to you. But you're right, people do change their email addresses, people change physical addresses, obviously. So it's not inconceivable that somebody would be in the dark about something like this that was happening to them. So I think the lesson to learn here is don't let the automation make you just completely unaware. This is not a set it and forget it kind of thing. You still have to be checking in and you've got to make sure that you're information is up to date with any company that you have a financial relationship with so that they can tell you if something's going on. It's important to not let the automation get the better of you. If you've got stuff on auto pay, you should probably still be looking at it, right? You want to know if there's been an overpayment, right? If your meter reader on your utility service has made an error and all of a sudden you owe like 10 times what you should owe, that's not cool. You want to be able to stay on top of that and, and know what's going on there so that you don't have some financial shock. And then you also got to watch for you know a missing payment, right? Like there are times when maybe your credit card information got stolen or compromised and they issued you a new one or it expired and you forgot to go load the, the details into the place where your, I don't know, your toll tag gets reloaded with cash all the time. Right? There's all kinds of stuff out there that you may be relying on for auto payment. You got to make sure that there's not an overpayment or a missing payment for anything that you would expect regularly. Yeah, I do think most companies are pretty good about warning you if a credit card that they have on file for you is going to expire. But again, that only helps you if you have correct contact information on file with that company. 
So yeah, I think it's just important to keep track of which companies you have that financial relationship with anybody that you owe like a monthly quarterly or annual bill to you've got to know that that's there and it's coming and make sure that you're set up to get any kind of alerts about what's going on with that financial relationship so rebecca's car gets repossessed hugely embarrassing i i've never known anybody to have that happen to them at at a time when I was with them or anything like that. I cannot imagine how cringy it would be for that to happen in your office parking lot. But forgetting the whole social side of that, the fact that she's lost her car um, and and her her approach is, can I sell it? Can I do anything (laughs) about it? (laughs) Pretty bad. Yeah. And she talks about auto pay here and the fact that she had that set up, but obviously it's not helping her because she doesn't have any money to pay you with automatically. So yeah, and she obviously just has this terrible misunderstanding of what it means to own something when you have a lien against it, right? So cars and houses are the best example of this, most common one certainly. You own a house that you have a mortgage on, it's in your name, but that does not mean that it cannot be taken away from you, right? The bank can swoop in and take it right back and sell it out from under you if you don't make the payments. That's what's happening to Rebecca here. She didn't make the payments. The car company, whoever she has the loan with, is saying, yep, we think we'll take that car back now and try to sell it and get some money for it because we're not getting payments from you, so we gotta get it from somewhere else. So yeah, she cannot sell the thing that is being repossessed from her. That is what the repossessor is gonna do. She can't do it anymore. Yeah, the time to do that has long since passed. (laughs) Yeah, she's just made a bad mistake here. So let's take a turn now. Um, Rebecca is a lawyer, as we have been talking about. One of the great moments in this show is a musical number called Don't Be a Lawyer. We can't really do an episode of Pennies and Popcorn about crazy ex-girlfriend and not include a musical number. There's a person who works at the law firm that's friends with Rebecca and some of her colleagues who's thinking about going to law school and they are all, all of them to a person are trying to discourage this person from continuing for additional education and going to law school because they just don't think it's going to be a good call. Law school debt, daily regret, is that what you dreamed of as a kid? Or did you hope one day that you find a way to spend four years working on a pharmaceutical company's merger with another pharmaceutical company? Your only expertise is running up fees, speaking legalese like a dick. But it's not too late to avoid this fate, find any other job to pick. Sure, your parents might think you're a failure, but no one's ever said, first let's so before we get into the clip, if you thought that was fun, like that's what the whole show is, right? Like every episode, there's, I don't know, two, three, four songs like that. Not all of them are quite so catchy and uh, as, as ridiculous, but it, it's just fun. It's a fun show. Yeah, it's great. We've done a lot of episodes on shows that we're kind of mediocre about. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is not one of them. This show is top notch and everyone should go watch it. Okay. So back to the clip. Yeah. Uh, how does it start? Law school debt, daily regret. Okay. Law school debt. Carla, uh, you went to law school. It's basically free, right? Like it doesn't cost anything to go there. It, it, it might as well be like going to, you know, seventh or eighth grade, right? Yep. Totally free. Uh, gosh, no. Law school is really, really expensive. So the average amount of debt 
that a law school graduate leaves with is $165,000. That is a lot of money. And I should note, that's the average. You're going to have people who get out with a lot less. You're also going to have people who get out with a heck of a lot more than that. Okay. $165,000. That's a three-year program. Mm -hmm. You already had to have a bachelor's degree before that. So, you know, if you divide 165 by three, that's $55,000 a year. You are basically going into debt the amount in the neighborhood of what you might expect to earn with just a bachelor's degree, right? I think the average bachelor's degrees, salaries in the mid 40s, something like that. Yeah, that's about right. Obviously, it it's so hard to give an average. Yeah, a lot of different disciplines so, and, and right. degrees. Yeah. But that's about average of what you can expect. And with many degrees, <laughs> you could expect to be earning more than what you would be paying to go to law school. So yeah, it is. So a, it's a lot to give up to go into debt to go to school. It is a heck of a lot to give up. So let's talk about whether it's worth it, right? Let's look at some of the salaries. So let's start with the really good news. If you are the cream of the crop, you go to a really highly ranked law school and you do really well there, you can graduate and start with a salary of about $200,000. So that's the big law, Rebecca Bunch kind of role, right? Exactly. So I should say big law is kind of like a term of art in the legal community, capital B, capital L, big law. And it's used to refer to the bigger ones that have multiple offices. They usually attract more high-end clients. They can typically charge higher rates. And of course, as a result of that, they typically pay higher salaries to their associates and uh, more to the partners of the law firms. $200,000 is a supremely awesome amount of money to be making when you first graduate from law school when you're, I don't know, like 25-ish maybe. Okay. So, so that's that's a salary you might be able to earn if you're at the top and you go to one of those big law places you spoke about? That is correct. Now, as the song indicates, it is not necessarily super fun to be a lawyer, right? This is a job that is a lot more dry and a lot more effort and a lot more stress than I think most people realize before they get into the profession. It's funny, I was actually um, watching some people's reaction videos to this um, musical number from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and I saw a number of law students who were posting reaction videos to it, and as soon as I saw that they were law students, I was like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) You guys just cannot, you can't have the perspective on what it's really like to be a lawyer from just law school. Law school is so different than the actual practice of law. And it's funny because one of the reaction videos that I watched was a few years old and I Googled the girl's name after I'd watched her video. And sure enough, she is not practicing law anymore after just a couple years of practicing in the real world after graduation. She pulled the ripcord on that, even though her reaction video was like, do go to law school. It's going to be awesome. Law school is so great. Do be a lawyer. I think that is so common for a lot of people. We have stars in our eyes when we're in law school and we just don't realize how incredibly intense the work environment is going to be. The pressure to bill, the pressure of having, you know, millions and millions of dollars at stake on your back. And it's, it's a very intense environment. Yeah, there's a lot of burn and churn, right? They hire a bunch of kids right out of law school. 
and most of them don't make it to become partners. Many of them just, you know, are gone within a few years. You can go expect to earn that that $200,000 salary if you're one of the lucky ones who made it into one of those big firms only for a handful of years. On average, most people are out pretty quickly. So Yeah, I struggle to find concrete statistics on this. But anecdotally, based on my own experience, I think it's pretty common for most people to leave within about two to three years. So, and law firms expect that. They hire a lot of associates right out of law school, knowing that most of them are going to jump ship and they won't be around in five or six years. So I would, I found one number online, which feels about right to me that it's like less than 20% make it past five or six years. So if you live a fiscally conservative lifestyle, you can join a big law firm, pay off your law school debt pretty quickly, and then go get a job somewhere else. Now, what if you weren't somebody who was in a position to get a job in big law? What does that look like for you? Yeah, there are plum roles that are really, really difficult to get. So for most law school graduates, the median salary for lawyers just starting out is about $80,000. That is a huge decrease from $200,000. So you just cannot go to law school banking on the fact that you're going to get one of these really difficult to get jobs that's going to pay you an enormous salary right out of the gate. It's absolutely insane to go into that much debt fully expecting that you'll get one of those jobs because they're tough. Even if you're accepted to a really high-end law school like Harvard, you're not guaranteed that you're going to get one of these great jobs if you really struggle in law school and you graduate at the absolute bottom of your class. I don't think there is a law school you can go to where you can guarantee that you're going to walk out earning that top, top salary of 200 k a year. So if you're earning something closer towards the average and you had $160,000 worth of debt, and you compare it to the opportunity cost of what you could have had if you were already doing a, another kind of job with your bachelor's degree, you really better love what you're doing because you're not getting a whole lot of payday out of it. It's going to take a long time for it to work out. But if you're spending four years working on a merger with a pharmaceutical company with another pharmaceutical company, I, I can't <laughs> sing it like the guy in the show. Um, I, that's not what most people are excited about doing with their time, right? I, I, mm -hmm. I just can't imagine that the payoff can be that great for a lot of folks. And you gotta think, you gotta look at it with a critical eye when deciding to go to law school. Yeah, I, the joke in the song about doing a pharmaceutical company merger for four solid years, that is not at all unrealistic. So that is something that would be in a different field of law than what I practiced in. I did litigation, but and I certainly knew a lot of lawyers in my firm who were in that field. And I don't think that's terribly unrealistic. And it, I mean, I can tell you from my experience, just to give you one kind of crazy example, I spent months of my life at one point researching, writing about, and arguing with opposing counsel over the meaning of the word your, Y-O-U-R. You're, you're really, really drilling down and doing some very esoteric, tedious things as an attorney that most people just couldn't even dream of when they're in law school reading about the most interesting cases that make it into the law school textbooks, right? That people pick them because they're super interesting and they have kind of unusual things. But your day-to-day -day reality is basically you alone in your office, like 90% of the time, digging through papers, combing through old cases to try to find something to support your side of the argument, 
doing a lot of writing. It's a, it's a lonely job and it's very, very just dense and the pressure to do it well and make sure that you haven't missed anything is extremely high. So all of those things combined with the difficult work hours that most people are working in that field make it hard for people to stick with. So it's not Matlock, right? I think that's what everybody needs to know. But let's go back to this clip here. Your only expertise is running up fees and speaking legalese like a dick, right? <laughs> like it sounds like what you're talking about, right? I think the best lawyers in the world do not use this quote legalese. I'm sure everybody knows what legalese means, but basically it's like Latin words, really obscure words that never get used outside of the legal arena. I think there's medicalese too, right? Every company has their own version of this. Every Certainly every industry has their own version of this. To me, the mark of intelligence is not someone who can spew out a lot of words that the average person is not going to understand. Instead, it's somebody who can take kind of difficult, complicated concepts and boil them down to their essence and present them in a way that is very clear, very concise, short, and easy for anybody to understand. And the best lawyers in the world, like, for example, if you were to go and read most Supreme Court opinions, you would understand them pretty well because those justices, for the most part, are very, very intelligent and they're very, very good writers, communicators. And the opinions that they put together are extremely easy to understand. There might be some words in there that weren't, wouldn't be familiar to you, but for the most part, you would completely understand it. And that's because that is the mark of real intelligence. So yeah, legalese sucks. And if you're dealing with a really good lawyer, they should not be trying to obscure the message by covering everything in this shroud of legalese. They should be communicating to you like a real person and explaining it in a way that you can actually understand. So your parents might think you're a failure. What about that? Right? I mean, I lawyers are held in high esteem in society, although the follow-up line is, and no one's ever said, let's first let's kill all the tailors. So maybe they're not held in that high of esteem. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. What are your thoughts on, you know, parental expectations? I got extremely lucky with my parents who are loving and wonderful and just wanted me to be happy. But I think for a lot of people, there is this idea that like, well, you need something that's going to pay a lot of money and you should be, you know, maximizing your earnings in life as opposed to your enjoyment in life. And law school can be a pathway to do that if you are one of the elites and the lucky who is able to get into a good law school, do really well, and get into a super high-paying firm. But what good is that going to do you in life, right? Just the fact that your parents are proud of you is ultimately not the end goal of life. You have to live with yourself. You're the one who has to go to that job every day, not your parents. So if it's making you miserable... The fact that you've made your parents proud is going to be pretty cold comfort as you're, you know, eating dinner at 9 p.m. at night, hunched over your computer in your office all by yourself, wishing you were literally anywhere but there. So don't do it for the parental expectations, guys. It's just not worth it. When it comes to the societal opinions of attorneys, it is unfortunate that they have such a, a negative reputation because they are often held in high esteem. But it's, I think part of it is just the time that you interact with them, right? You go to an attorney in times of stress or in times of trouble. Um, no one thinks that a florist is <laughs> a 
an unfortunate profession to have because you go see a florist at happy times, generally speaking. I suppose there's funerals in there too. But, That's true. <laughs> uh, for the most part, it's happy celebration type times that you're doing stuff with a florist. Whereas with an attorney, uh, aside from maybe having them review a contract for a, a, a lease or for a mortgage or something like that, you're generally going when things have gone wrong. Yeah, certainly for me in the litigation field, we do not get the phone call until the shit has already hit the fan and people are stressed out. It's an interesting profession. I feel like on the one hand, a lot of people are impressed and will give you a lot of praise for going to law school. And on the flip side, you have people who are like lawyers are dishonest and they're, you know, just trying to trick people. And I mean, it's not completely wrong because a lot of what lawyers do is try to find different angles on things, right? You may look at a document and think, oh, this clearly says one thing. And an experienced lawyer can look at it and say, well, wait a second, it might actually mean something a little bit different. And, you know, I think my client should win because there's this old case that interpreted the word shall to mean, you know, might instead of must. So yeah, I can certainly understand why people have a bad taste in their mouth with a lot of lawyers because sometimes they're stretching words in a way that an average person just thinks is is wild and weird but a lot of times there's actual support for that throughout you know history precedent that you can cite to as an attorney and say my client should win because this is what this has been held to mean in the past so if you couldn't tell based on the amount of time we've allotted to the different things in this episode of pennies and popcorn we very much enjoyed this don't be a lawyer song <laughs> and we're not done with it uh, we actually took a second clip from the song and want to talk about more of it yeah let's listen what about human rights law no money no no money environmental law no money even less money immigration law no money plus it's a bummer okay but what if one day you make it to the supreme court it'd be great to be Supreme Court, but you'll never be on the Supreme Court. There's truly no chance of that happening. Don't be a lawyer. Yep. <laughs> so, so let's walk you through these things one by one. This uh, young young person who wants to be a lawyer is making all these objections. You know, like, but what about this and what about that? Like, being a lawyer can be really awesome. So, the first objection that this person makes is, what about? Human rights law. No money. <laughs> yeah, that's the response. No money in that. Like, don't waste your time. That's not, you're not going to get a $200,000 big law job working for human rights, are you? You are not. I can tell you that every big law firm in the country does not have a, like, human rights section. <laughs> it's just flat not there. <laughs> Who, where, where could you work working on human rights stuff? Is this like a public sector job, a... Working for a charitable organization, something like the ACLU? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I, to call yourself a, quote, human rights lawyer, I think is kind of unusual. I've never met anybody who introduced <laughs> themselves in that way. It sounds like you're pretty proud of yourself. Yeah. You're a human rights lawyer. Yeah, I think you would be more specific as to what field you worked in. The ACLU is a good example of that. They kind of fight for people's rights in various fields. But yeah, they're generally trying to make sure that the fundamental constitutional rights that people have aren't being trampled over. If you are an attorney who works at a public sector organization like this, you're going to be making a lot less money. So 
the median salary for an attorney in the public sector is about $60,000 a year. So it's, it's a lot less. Now you can find places that will pay you more than that. But again, on the flip side, I mean, when we're talking about medians, you can find people who are going to be on the, the lower end of that too. So I would not discourage someone from going to law school if this was their deep, deep passion and they just couldn't feel satisfied with themselves doing anything else in life. But I would tell them to be really, really careful and to make sure that they weren't going to too expensive of a law school because, yeah, you're going to be paying down that law school debt for a really, really long time. What about environmental law? I mean, you and I love the outdoors and our, our natural environment. We, we certainly support efforts to go protect it and make sure that we're, we're, we have a safe and wonderful world for future generations to have uh, even less money. Yeah. Well, so actually here's some really great news. You can make a ton of money as an environmental lawyer. I mean, a ton of money you could make like into, you know, probably a million plus dollars a year as an environmental lawyer. Really? Oh yeah, for sure. It's, you can save the planet and make a million dollars? Well, it's just that to make that much money as an environmental attorney, you're going to be representing the big corporations that would probably prefer to not be saving planet Earth as much oh. as they would prefer to be, you know, kind of sneaking around the regulations as best they can to make sure that they can pollute just enough and still get away with it and be in compliance with the laws. Yeah, most, so I'm obviously being a little tongue in cheek here, but yeah, most big law firms will have an environmental lawyer or two hanging around, maybe even, you know, more than that if it's a firm that focuses more heavily on it. But yeah, certainly a lot of big law firms have environmental lawyers. I actually knew somebody in law school who was interviewing at a big firm and was interested in doing this kind of environmental work. And she had um, one of the partners at a big firm who was interviewing her ask her during an interview, have you seen the movie Aaron Brockovich? And she says, yeah. And the guy says, you do realize that we're the bad guys in that movie, right? <laughs> like if you come here and you work for us, you're going to be on the side representing PG&E, which is the company polluting water in the movie Aaron Brockovich, as opposed to being Aaron Brockovich and her team who's trying to fight us. Like you get that, right? So yeah, that is basically what you're dealing with when you're talking about being an environmental lawyer on that side. If you're on the other side, if you're working for like the Sierra Club, yeah, you're going to be making way, way less money. Well, that's unfortunate. The idealism, the jobs that people might be really excited about don't pay. What about immigration law? You do immigration law, Carla. Um, yeah, so after I no left... No money, plus it's a bummer, <laughs> I think it's the line. So when I left my big law job, um, after a little break for us to do some backpacking, I yeah, joined a small immigration firm and that's what I'm doing to this day. I really, really enjoy it. It can be a bummer, right? I mean, most people think that there's like a quote, right way to immigrate to the United States. And there is, it's just that it's this teeny tiny little bottleneck that an extremely small population can fit through in this quote, legal and right way. So we see a lot of folks who are coming to us and, you know, desperate to do the right thing. And we just have to tell them, you know, I'm so sorry, but these are, these are the laws. These are the things that you could do to, to come here legally, to get legal status in the United States. And they're just extremely few and far between. So yeah, 
it's almost like winning the lottery. In fact, winning a quote lottery is one of the ways that you can come to the United States <laughs> legally. But, you know, that's obviously just based on pure luck. That's you have no control over whatsoever. So it can be a major bummer. It does not pay super well. The only way to make a pretty decent salary as an immigration lawyer is to do an extremely high volume of work, basically have just churning through clients one right after the other, um, which I we do not do. <laughs> well, I think it's probably the corporate kind of immigration stuff, right? People who have a visa to come in because they have like a science or engineering background or some sort of specialized role that we don't have enough candidates for in the United States. And you basically have this big machine that you run people through, right? You, you have partnerships with com- big companies, they hire you and you help get their people through. But if you want to help like individuals, people who've had a terrible life and are trying to come here for a better life, yeah, I'm sure there are lots of things in there that are a bummer. And that's what you do, right? There, mm-hmm. there are folks who you have been able to help a lot. And I'm sure it just feels incredible to, to make that difference in their lives and help them get through the process and be able to, to have the thriving life here in the United States that they were looking for. But is, that doesn't happen 100% of the time. Yep. It is a very, very much a labor of love to, to do the work that we do. And sometimes we don't get the results that we, we hope for. But, you know, we keep fighting a good fight and doing the best we can. And it's fun. But I also came to this job after having worked a big law job for a heck of a lot of years that set us up for financial success. So, yeah, if this is what you're doing coming straight out of law school, it's going to be a lot harder for you to pay back those student loans and to set yourself up for financial success. So, But Carla, what about the Supreme Court? I mean, honestly, what about it? They <laughs> they are so right. It is just flat impossible. Like for any individual person, your odds of being on the Supreme Court are just obscene. It's ridiculous. So there are about 1.33 million lawyers in the United States today. And there are nine of them on the Supreme Court. You don't even have to be a lawyer, right? Well, yes, that is true. Technically, there are virtually no requirements to be on the Supreme Court. You don't have to be a U.S. national. You don't have to have gone to law school. Like, theoretically, we could go find, you know, the next person who walks down our street and they could be nominated to the Supreme Court. But in reality, (laughs) that is no longer the case. You have to have extremely high-end, impeccable credentials. And much more importantly than that, you have to be the kind of person who's willing to really put yourself out there and hustle like crazy, meet a lot of the right people, network and make friends in extraordinarily high places. I mean, I'm sure most people know this, but to be on the Supreme Court, you have to be personally appointed by the president of the United States. And then you go through a fairly rigorous confirmation process where the U.S. Senate has to vet you and ask you lots of questions and make sure that they think that you're okay for the job. And then you get finally approved. So it's not exactly like just, you know, submitting your application. It's just something that is extremely high-end and very, very difficult to get. I mean, the same applies to appellate and just district federal judges, right? Yeah. Any kind of judgeship period is going to be really hard, especially federal. So there are 179 appellate judges federal appellate judges who work at what's called circuit courts. It's kind of like the step down from the U.S. Supreme Court. And then below that, another step down from those appellate courts 
are the federal district courts, and there are 677 federal judges, federal district court judges. So yeah, like that's a lot more than nine, but your odds are still infinitesimal. So still less than a thousand federal judges. Yeah. Overall, that's exactly right. Now you can be a state court judge and there are a whole heck of a lot more of those. Typically, those are elected positions. It depends on the state. Every state has their own system, but a lot of those are are elected. So if you want to be a state court judge, you're looking at, you know, going out and pounding the pavement and putting together ads and spending a lot of money on your campaign. I mean, this is not an easy thing to do. So to be any kind of a judge whatsoever is extremely hard. Yeah, you pretty much needed to go to one of the best law schools, do extremely well there. You probably needed to go to a, a very elite undergraduate institution most of the time too. Yeah, the judge that I clerked for right out of law school, he was double Yale, Yale undergrad and Yale law school. And that's that's not terribly uncommon. For state court judges, they typically have less of a, the high-end degrees. But I mean, those are political jobs. You have to exactly. you have to be a candidate and elected to those positions, right? Yeah, which means people care a little bit less about you know where you went to school, but they care a lot about how you present yourself, and you know just your willingness to go out and shake a heck of a lot of hands, kiss a lot of babies, all that jazz. So it's not not an easy feat to get elected. Well, what I'm getting from this song is that maybe going to law school is not the best idea for a lot of folks and people should reconsider whether they want to be a lawyer. I think the title of the song, Don't Be a Lawyer, is generally very solid advice. (laughs) So many people are just not suited to do it. And even if you are, the odds that you are going to, you know, be at this really elite level, be someone who gets a really high score on the LSAT someone who really crushed it in undergrad and has great grades from undergrad to get you into a great law school. And then once you get there to be someone who really clicks with the way that law schools operate, which is very different from undergrad, by the way, do well there and get into a good job. Like these are all big And then actually like that job in the end? Yeah, exactly. Like there's just giant hurdle after giant hurdle after giant hurdle. And if it's really your dream, I don't want to discourage anyone from doing it because I do know some happy lawyers. There's a a line in the song, the job is inherently crappy. That's why you've never met a lawyer who's happy. (laughs) And that is largely true, but it's not true across the board. There are people who genuinely love it and they make a lot of money and it's a great fit for them. So if you feel really sure that you are going to be one of those people, then I say go for it. But my best advice is to talk to a lot of actual real-life lawyers before you jump into that frying pan because it's an expensive frying pan. It's one that's going to follow you around for a really long time. And you want to make sure that as best you can, that it's going to be a really good fit for you and it's going to be worth the investment. Well, what I'm sure of is if you enjoyed these little clips we played of the Don't Be a Lawyer song, you will like how smart and funny and clever the whole Crazy Ex-Girlfriend show is. And it's totally worth your time. I think you can, it's probably still on Netflix. Indeed it is. Yeah. So I would go spend some time and check it out. Watch a couple episodes. It's a lot of fun. Yep. We hope you enjoyed this episode too, guys. And just don't forget to not be a lawyer. (laughs) And put your stuff into a financial tracker and stay on top of it. Yeah. Keep it no more than five years between looking at your bank account. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll catch you next time. Take care.